Welcome to Post-Status Draft, the official podcast for Post-Status, a website with news and information for WordPress professionals. Today, Brian Richards and I talk about market opportunities in the upper tier and enterprise space, especially with regards to the service industry. But also we talk about how WordPress compares to some of the other CMS options that you may be competing with when you're bidding on contracts. If you enjoy this podcast, you can get more quality news and analysis from the post Club. Check out our current club members, site partners, and join the club on our website at postatus.com slash club. Today, I'd like to feature one of our partners, WooCommerce. WooCommerce makes the most customizable e-commerce software on the planet, and it's the most popular too. I power my own businesses with WooCommerce software, and I can truly say it's the most important part of my business in terms of the tooling that I'm using. I love WooCommerce, I've been using it for years, and it won't let you down. Try WooCommerce today by going to WooCommerce.com, and thank you for the team at WooCommerce for being a post partner. Now, here's our show. Hey everybody, I'm Brian Krogsgaard, and I'm the editor of PostStatus. And I am Brian Richards, and I run WP Sessions. And welcome to another episode of the Post-Status Draft Podcast. Today, we have quite a bit to talk about. We're going to continue our discussion about WordPress market opportunities. But before we do that, we're going to jump into some news, because there's been a lot happening since our last episode. That's right. Uh, Before we do get into those news items, the market opportunities that we're going to discuss today are the enterprise side of things. Last time we talked about kind of the entry-level and mid-market stuff, so we're going to get into enterprise topics. Um, But like you said, we've got some news to cover. So let's start with an acquisition that happened in our space, and that was one that I wrote about on the website, uh, Liquid Web Acquired iThemes. iThemes has been in the WordPress space for like 10 years. Um, both exactly of these com- 10 years. Yeah, exactly 10 years. Both of these companies, we should note, are uh, friends of the show, if you will. Um, we know a lot of the people that were involved in the deal personally. Um, I'm personally very happy for them. I talked to uh, Corey Miller and I talked to Chris Lima. Corey is the CEO of iThemes. Chris Lima is a vice president of product innovation or That's products correct. and innovation yep. uh, at Liquid Web and uh, seemed like a natural fit for me. But what was your what was your takeaway, Brian? I think it's awesome. I I was a pretty even mix of surprised and also like, well, yeah, that just makes perfect sense. Um, surprised because you always, well, I always wonder, will somebody actually sell given the opportunity to sell their business? Because iThemes has been Corey's baby since it was Right since he launched the company ten years ago, uh, mm-hmm. Matt Danner's been at his side practically since the very beginning, yeah. and um, and he has and business so partners in Oklahoma as well that are like local folks, silent business correct. partners. Yep. So I I was surprised when the announcement came out, but not surprised about the announcement. If that makes sense, like I'm, I'm not yeah. surprised that he did sell. I was just surprised uh, when it happened because I wasn't following too closely to notice. I guess. They've been courting each other for a while. Yeah, they had partnerships together. And it's always one of those things, like you said, with you you, you come to this point where you decide like, okay, I'm I'm comfortable with selling a business and a business much less that you've been running for 10 years. That's a serious uh, chapter, you know, of your life. Um, And the people that have worked with you for a long time. So that's what they had to um, think through. And also the evolution of the industry and the trend that we continue to see uh, evolve, which is hosts bundling more and more features that were uh, historically uh, product channels for service or product companies. Um, 
And those are things that hosts want to be able to offer directly now. So, you know, it seems like iThemes chose their exit at a time that worked well for them um, to be able to make everybody happy and to join a company that they align well with. So yeah. it made and sense it's not to me. Really an exit in a sense, because the whole iThemes crew is still st- staying on in Oklahoma, still producing pretty cool stuff. Yeah, yeah. When I say exit, I mean in terms of ownership exit. Right. Not not their piecing out. This is clearly uh, not the type of acquisition where the purpose of the acquisition is to gain a customer base or something like that, technology, and you don't care about the people. Like This seems actually much more an acquisition where the people are the most important utility that you get. Yep. And uh, the the reason that I'm most excited for this is because I've been watching the trajectory of iThemes and the things that they're producing and the scale at which their their products are trying to reach with things like Backup Buddy Stash and iThemes Sync. That uh, I think this is going to give them a lot of velocity, enable. Uh, and enable them to scale up the services that they're providing uh, much more quickly, um, certainly much more quickly than if they had just stayed as an independent company. So very excited to see the stuff that comes out of their workshop now. And I think velocity is a good word. Uh, I have come to personally value the, the very idea of being able to do things with a certain velocity or momentum. So um, having a very large hosting company at your as your wind in your sails <laughs> to, to help get things done uh, and to be able to do so confidently, you know, you're not you're not worried about payroll every month or like all the things that you worry about as a small business owner. Um, I think that'll equip them well to do additionally neat things with their products that have uh, have aged very well. You know, Backup Buddy has been around forever and uh, their security products doing really well. Their sync products doing really well. Anyway, so that was that was that news. And then let's do uh, the policy changes on .org next because we'll probably spend a little more time on the release thing. Uh, yeah, there was there was a policy change with the way plugin old plugin notices are shown. I wanted to just bring this up because it was it's impactful even though it's small. So. There's for a long time, there's been a notice that shows up on WordPress.org. If your plugin hadn't been updated in more than two years, one, it was no, no longer shown in uh, like search results. And then number two uh, is there's this banner that says, hey, this hadn't been updated in over two years. And there were a lot of complaints because some people were like, well, the plugin hasn't needed to be updated in two years because of whatever the t- plugin is. It just isn't always warranted. Um, so that's been changed. Now, if the plugin hasn't been tested in the latest three major releases of WordPress, that's what's shown as it says this has not been tested in three major releases. Um, so it seems like a really positive change to me, but potentially significant, more significant than we might give it credit for. Yeah, I, I agree. This is what I think is a change for the better, because like you said, Plugins that haven't been updated in two years aren't necessarily out of date. I can think of a number of plugins that I use that just don't need an update. Things like um, Posts to Posts hasn't been updated in over two years. It continues to work just fine until there's a major schema change in the WordPress database structure, which I'm very confident there won't be. That plugin doesn't really have a reason to update. Um, Things like uh, user switching. John Blackboard maintains that one. And uh, it has been updated recently, but that's another one that could go a very long period of time without getting updated. So changing it from an arbitrary date-based marker to one where we just need to see that the plugin has been tested with releases, which is still just on the author to update their readme and push those changes to the to the .org repo, um, 
I think is a much better choice. Completely agree. So just a little note that we thought was worth mentioning. And then uh, the last news story we have is quite an interesting one. Uh, So WordPress 4.9.3 was a regular maintenance release, but it happened to have an error that wasn't caught. Um, And the error is a PHP fatal error that's triggered when WordPress tries to update itself. WordPress auto-updates for minor releases were introduced in WordPress 3.7. So ever since then, every time there's a a minor release, especially related to security issues, uh, WordPress.org actually automatically pushes those updates out to all the websites that have historically uh, been able to accept them. They didn't have like WordPress inside Git or like some other trigger or manual reasoning for not ex- accepting the update. Um, this bug prevents that from happening in the future. Uh, so basically, if if unaddressed from hosts then or site owners, um, then those websites cannot get minor updates in the future. So fairly significant. Yeah. To to further drive this home, maybe explained a slightly different way. Every single release that did get updated to f- to the what is the equivalent of the 4.9.3 release so 3.7 point whatever i think that's 15 17 18 19 now um that kills minor update releases for whatever branch they're in so they can never ever automatically update to the next minor release. So releasing 4.9.4 and all of the previous versions with that minor point release doesn't fix the problem because the fatal error already exists on all of the servers for all of the sites that updated. Uh, And so the only way to rectify this is for site owners to either go in and manually update their old sites or for the hosts to go in and automatically update all of their customer sites, which is not a thing that many hosts will do. In fact, most of them have expressed a strict hands-off approach of, we are never going to alter anything on our customers' accounts ever, which I think yeah. is a good position to take for them. Yeah. Uh, but well, unfortunate for for the ramifications of this. And that's changed a little bit over time. Like, may, they'll be willing to do take certain precautions for safety reasons. And we'll have to see. Like, that's something I'm actually digging into right now to figure out how especially the big hosts are addressing it. But let's assume every big host says, okay, this is we'll take care of this and that therefore they'll be able to receive minor updates in the future. The ones that really concern me are the really long tail of hosts that don't care or site owners that are on like un- completely unmanaged hosting, like, you know, some empty, uh, unmanaged VPS or something, uh, that essentially are lost at that point. So it's pretty significant and unfortunate, but you know, maybe it's just one of those one of those things. I look forward to seeing what type of changes come out of it. I know they're they're going to do essentially an audit and uh, bring out a lot more information because it is a this was pretty significant. Um, so we'll we'll see what comes of it. But fortunately, there weren't like specific security implications in the in those in the four point nine three four point nine four releases. It's more one of those things like, well, what about when we do have a security issue that comes up and we need to address it? Now we've kind of hamstrung ourselves in being able to get that out there. So I hope that there's a lot of um, forward uh, effort, I guess, like so where people, a lot of outreach to hosts uh, and beyond just the big hosts to try to get this get this fixed up. So if you work at a hosting company or manage websites, uh, make sure that you pay attention to this and we'll put relevant links in the show notes because you want to make sure your sites are going to be available to receive those updates. Yeah. And I, I want to add that I really emphasize with uh empathize with whoever it was um, who ultimately added this unfortunate fatal error 
in this update routine check. I have pushed a good many number of bugs in my career, and I always feel really dumb and upset by that. Yeah, and I'm so glad that I I didn't push this one. I don't want it to even be individualized because these things happen from everyone. This I don't one even can't want to be know. a single person's fault, regardless right. of who it was who introduced the bug. Many people are involved necessarily in the committer tree and the deployment tree. So it just it sucks that this is something that we didn't already have tests for because there are many tests in the WordPress library, which is awesome. But this particular one slipped through, and that's man. I, right. Whoever uh, was involved here, if you're listening to this, uh, don't feel terrible. Don't beat yourself up over this. I know that I would, um, but... But don't. But don't, yeah. Anybody could make that mistake. It's just one of those things. And I bet uh, hosts don't want their websites to be vulnerable either. So I think that we should see a good response from hosting yep. companies out there. So let's move into uh, our topic, which is a continuation of discussing WordPress market opportunities. And in the last episode, we talked about opportunities in the down market and mid market range. And this time we really want to talk mostly about the enterprise market. Um, so why don't we start by saying what what is like the upper tier market and the enterprise market? How do you define it? Sure. Those are the markets that are above the other ones. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm playing. Well, um, I, I would, <laughs> I would define sort of that upper market in sort of the 50K to 100K range. So the, the, the projects that are going to require a much more serious investment of attention and hours than those in the mid-market and obviously the, the entry market. And then enterprise, I would classify generally as anything that costs uh, 100K plus. And these are not cut and dry ranges. These are just ones that sort of map to my own experiences. You could have a project for an enterprise client that's just a couple thousand dollars, right? If it's if we're talking about consultations or small add-ons to projects you've already done for them. Uh, but in general, if we're talking about like a brand new project for a brand new client, enterprise customers generally are looking for larger things that cost a lot of money and require a lot of time and often a lot of people. Or so, smaller things that cost a lot of money. Right, yeah, that's true. Um, and I guess one one more caveat to this generalization is a lot of enterprise companies that are smart and careful with spending their dollars will test the waters intentionally with a smaller project, say in the sub-50K range, to see, is this an agency that we can trust? Uh, can they get this job done? Do we want to give them the bigger projects? So uh, yeah. I guess take take these price ranges with an enormous grain of salt. Before we get into another realm outside of service work and consulting, what are a couple of the key things that you think make upper market and enterprise work stand out from other work? So like, yeah. So the the two biggest things that come to my mind are discovery phases because these um, almost require that you have a discovery project. Certainly, when we're talking at projects that are a hundred k plus, you're going to want to have a separate, smaller, standalone discovery phase in order to fully marinate in the problem space and understand what the client is even asking of you. And uh, they may discovery, even require it. Discovery being. Uh, Literally discovering what is this project going to be 
in greater detail or more technical detail. Exactly. And so they come to you and say, we want to do this thing. And you say, that's great. In order to better understand what this thing is, let's spend a smaller amount of hours, 40 hours, 80 hours. And we are going to have a few meetings with you and ask you a bunch of probing questions. Then we might even try to, to build something. Sometimes discovery projects have a build phase. Sometimes it's just strictly an outlining and assessing phase. Um, but what you're building isn't ever going to be a releasable final product. It's usually just a, a proof of concept. I think we understand what you want. I think we should take this approach to do it. So let us build a prototype and give you something that we can interact with and see, does this match up with your description? Uh, and in most cases, at the smaller end, it's just a meeting or a series of meetings to, to better flesh out what it is the project is. So you're not having lots of detailed meetings and putting together a very comprehensive proposal for free, because that would be a colossal waste of time if they come back and say, actually, we're not interested in any of that. <laughs> in your experience, how often was the client prepared for a discovery phase and like it was built into their expectations, or you had to break it to them that this is something that they needed? Uh, I would say it was about 50-50. So I guess it would depend on whether the client was in this enter enterprise space or in the upper market segment. I'd say that, that might be one of the defining characteristics of of who falls into what camp. Enterprise clients were more uh, more willing and often more expecting of being pitched a discovery project ahead of whatever their original request was. Um, the other, to, to circle back to your original question, the, the other defining characteristic that I have for, for these two groups is retainer work. Almost always work for upper market and enterprise clients comes with a retainer. So additional services for maintaining the project, for expanding on the project, for buildings phases two and onward. <laughs> In the lower ends, the mid-tier and the entry tier, phase two is this myth. That's where you put all of the tasks that you don't want to do that you know <laughs> are never going to get done. So when the client says, we'd like to do this, and you go, that sounds great. Let's put that in phase two. That's the equivalent of saying, that's great. Keep that idea to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> but in upper market enterprise... Not that you've ever deployed such a tactic. No, of course not. Uh, in, in the upper market and enterprise groups, phase two is a real thing. Uh, so if you haven't ever come to those, you should realize this when you say, yeah, let's put that in phase two. That's something you're going to actually be dealing with as soon as the site launches. How does it work contractually, typically? Um, do you agree to, with a client to a price range or to a certain number of uh, phases? Or is it, here's how many dollars we have and here's what's deliverable within that? Or is it multiple contracts? Oh, in your, it it in can your be any one of those things. It, it really depends on your business style and the client's business style and what you're both comfortable with. You can do it with saying, here's our estimate up front. This is what it's going to cost. These are the number of hours we're going to spend. These are the number of weeks on the calendar uh, that we are going to be working. In fact, the hours, if you're calculating those, are only ever an internal metric that you're never sharing with the client. They don't care how long it takes you uh, in terms of actual time spent. They care about calendar weeks. How long from when we sign this contract until we launch the thing? What are the phases in between when we see progress, when we have demos, when we're you know, doing QA? When are all of those things happening? And so you can write contracts where you're, you're setting up that timeline up front and saying, here's the final total cost, should nothing else change. You can have a more agile approach where you can say, here's what we expect it to cost, right? It might be 100000 to 150000 We're going to make assessments every two weeks as we build things. And you'll know every two weeks, are we still on target for that range? Is it going to cost less? Is it going to cost more? 
And that that point there is an important part that I've noticed is often missed for people who try to adopt agile while doing client-based work. Those two things, agile works really great for internal products uh, and not super well for commissioned client-based product projects. Because it's, because it's hard to come to an agreement on right. the variation space. Exactly. Whatever you call that. Um, and when clients are saying, yes, we do want to do agile. Yes, let's do two-week sprints. Yes, here's our full list of things. What they actually expect is we want a final product that has that entire list of things that we gave you at the beginning, and we want it to cost as much as we estimated, or you estimated in the beginning, and yeah. we want it to take exactly as long as you expect in the beginning. So it needs to be on time within the lower realm of the st- stated budget, um, with all of the features, perhaps <laughs> yeah, with, with every others. feature we wanted. <laughs> Most of the time, they they want to be agile, so they have the freedom to change their mind. And, and whatever and whatever uh, hiccups that we create for ourselves, you need to be able to absorb. Exactly. So the the way to combat that, to actually make agile work, if that's the way you want to do it, uh, is to have say two week check ins where you're saying, here's how much of the budget has been spent already. Here's how much we still think is left, so they can know. No, okay, I've spent 20000 of the projected 100000 and now you're telling me that it's probably actually going to cost 120000 So it's gotten a little bigger. That gives them a bit more information so they can say, maybe I do need to cut out some features. Um, or to say, yep, that still looks good. We'll go ahead and pay for the overages both in time and and money because we want all of these features in here. Um, and then the other way that this often works out contractually is breaking it into smaller phases. So phase two, three, et cetera, are defined scope at the very beginning of the project. So we're launching phase one, and to launch phase one, it will cost this much and take this long. Other features are going to go into phase two. So when phase one is done, we will launch phase two, and it will take this long and cost this much, and then so on. And as new features and requests crop up in phases one, two, et cetera, they're always discussed as that's something we can do. We should do it later for these reasons. Or we can do it now, but it means we cannot do these other things and still hit the same deadline. Is it common, maybe beyond a discovery phase, but to do like essentially a smaller test project, essentially as like you're you're dating the client a little bit or the client's dating you? And how often is that, um, truly representative of those future phases, like because it seems to me, at least when I've been involved in client work, it seems like sometimes the agency will make some sacrifices to make sure that phase one goes really well, <laughs> uh, in terms of being able to get, uh, book future phases. Do you think yeah. that is smart or can it come back to bite you or what's your experience in that realm? Yes, I do. And my experience maps with what you described. So we've got two two different concepts to explore here, right? One, how often is there a smaller test project, a courting project? Uh, and two, um, how well does that map into moving into the other phases? So um, yes, I mentioned a few moments ago that enterprise clients will often present you with a smaller project. You know, you'll have somebody like a Microsoft or a Disney or someone in this upper echelon who's got deep pockets and lots of products and lots of projects to support those products, and they're finding vendors to help with them. Um, They're often split into many, many smaller companies. Like, 
Disney, for example, is probably 50, 60 companies strong or more at this point because they've acquired 20th Century Fox and a whole bunch of other things. Um, Microsoft is broken into like they have their office team, the Xbox team, the Skype team, et cetera. So you may be working with one smaller team within one smaller company within this huge entity. And uh, you might not get to build the great big thing, um, perhaps ever, but certainly not to start. They're likely going to bring you, um, right, Pepperidge Farm might say, we want to redo the Goldfish's Snack Crackers website. And this website's going to have browsable recipes. It's going to show what kind of uh, varieties of Goldfish Crackers exist and a store locator so people can find them in their local supermarket. <laughs> and what, what's it going to take for your company to build this project? And so you're, you're bidding on what is essentially a brochure site for this massive corporation, which is actually Campbell's, who owns Pepperidge Farm, who owns Goldfish. You know too uh, much about the Goldfish. I love the Goldfish because they're so delicious. Okay. That's the tagline, by the way, for anybody who's outside the U.S. who doesn't <laughs> know what Goldfish crackers are. Um, Anyway, so you're so you're focused on this one team for this one small project, and they're looking for something that might cost you know ten to twenty k. And their expectation is how you handle this ten to twenty k project will um, infer how you can handle a one hundred plus k project. And we get into this dangerous area, as you described, where. Uh, vendors, agencies will bend over backwards to do this one small project really well, often giving away too much to make a good impression um, and might not actually get the larger project project in the end, which is really unfortunate. Um, but also unfortunate is if they do get the project, now they've set what could be an unrealistic expectation of, well, they're willing to work with us and do whatever we ask and get everything done without ever increasing the cost at all. And it's important, like the the most important thing, as we talked about in the last episode, is having good open channels of communication so that uh, you're setting the client's expectation and you're managing that expectation all the time. So when they come to you with a request, it's not just, yes, let's do it, or no, we can't do that. It's usually a, a yes and. Yes, that sounds great. And we're going to have to look at moving that to a later phase, or we're going to have to look at increasing the budget, or increasing the timeline, or cutting out a feature, or whatever, right? Yeah. You're telling them you yes. Might, you might increase that win ratio on those smaller introductory projects, but they could create some of your bigger headaches down the road if those expectations aren't set properly. Whereas exactly. your, your win ratio might go down if you're like... Uh, underselling in a way, you know, saying, you know, this is going to be more difficult or more expensive or take longer, whatever, yep. than what someone else might be promising. These, but you're trying these, smaller, to, these smaller projects are really useful for agencies in the same way that they're really useful for the clients requesting them, because it gives you as an agency a chance to see what it's like to work with this client. There are certain clients that you'll have that you'll find a very high touch they need to have lots of attention, many touch points. They want, you know, meetings. They want regular updates. They want things that they can see and interact with. And those are great clients if you are prepared for that and you've priced the work accordingly. Those are right. terrible clients if you said, oh, this is a 10K project. I'll just bang it out, you know, over the next month and... Um, I'll say hi, get the contract signed, and let them see it when it's all done. And then you find out, like, oh, no, they want to have a call every three days because they've got stakeholders invested in this project, and they have to keep them updated. And now, oh, my gosh, the stakeholders' requirements have changed, which means that my project owner's requirements have changed, which means that my requirements have changed in building it. 
and this is a nightmare. And mm -hmm. nothing is different about that client other than your your expectation and understanding of who they are and what they need. And so if you can if you can do smaller projects and have ample opportunity to get to know them and see what it's like to work with them, um, even if they are high touch, you're prepared for it and can meet or exceed their expectations, even when they have very needy expectations. Right. Yeah. Uh, what's the bad side of working with this upper upper echelon, and does it does the upside out outpace it? In your opinion, that the answer to the second question is going to be different for every person who works on it, because everybody has their own expectations of what work should be and how it should result. the The biggest downside, though, is potentially producing work that is never released or mm. work that takes way longer to release than you had anticipated. I worked on a project that took over two years to finish, a web-based project, mind you, uh, from initial discovery to initial prototype to a second round of discovery and then ultimately what got build, uh, built took over two calendar years to finish. And that will burn out a lot of people where you're working on the same thing over and over and over again. You know, by the time you start year one, you've got a legacy code base now. You've written it. It has no outside users other than you and your fellow developers, but it is now a legacy code base that you are maintaining in addition to writing new features. This provides lots of opportunity for changes in scope. And even when those are paid changes in scope, uh, usually nobody's happy about that. The client's not happy because it means that, you know, this $200,000 project is now a $250,000 project. Uh, the staff who's been working on this isn't happy because they spent the last, say, three months of their life working on a feature that now has to either be rewritten or scrapped. Um, and then the worst possible outcome is after, say, a year or two years or however long, let's even say it's just six months, right? You think it's going to be a two-month project, it's a six-month project. By the time you hit that tail end, nobody's happy about it other than just the sense of relief of, oh my gosh, it's done. Whew, finally, I can clear out my brain and move on to something else. Or the worst case, it never launches. The project comes to an end, you part ways, and all of that work was essentially wasted, right? You're just yep. like shoveling coal into an oven for two years, with nothing so the, to show for it except the heat. The effect on employees could really be severe in that case. Yep. So that's and that's the, more likely to happen when you're working with bigger clients with more bureaucracy and um, stuff that might get in the way, right? Yep. Or it, it, it's often just a necessary thing for building a big project, right? If you're building a big project that solves a problem uh, for either many stakeholders or is by necessity a complex problem, it just takes time to think through how should we solve this? What are the approaches we should take? You know, different iterations as you're working through the project. And some people don't like to work on one project for, say, an entire year. They prefer to work on something that takes a month and then something that takes two months and then another thing that takes a month because the, the joy of building is really the joy of releasing something new. And working with enterprise, the release cycle is very prolonged and very slow, um, not only because the problems are solved, but uh, problems are tough, but also because they might just need to work more slowly for other reasons in the business. You could build yeah. this thing in two months, but we can't release it for six months because of these other things. They're a publicly traded company. They've got other things going on, right? There's, there are so many variables that dictate their release schedule that you're not in control of. And that's a real downer for a lot of developers. On the positive side of this, again, I'd say more so if you're 
Well, as an employee, it's probably that you're working on something consistent, so you're not jumping from project to project all the time, which can be its own wear. But let's let's speak more from an employer or a business owner's perspective. For them, it's the promise of consistent work in the sense of income. Like they exactly, it makes payroll less terrifying. It makes yes. There's a high degree uh, of predictability with yeah. enterprise work because you know, okay, here's the project, here are our milestones, here's when we're getting paid, and we only need to sign this many projects for the entire year. We've already got the next six months done, so we're booking from, say, let's say we're talking from the perspective of January, we're only booking from July outward. Um, this it, it You can be more forward-thinking with your business because you're hopefully booked far enough in advance to where you're managing the, what the business will be six months or a year from now, not what the man, business will be a month from now. Exactly. And f- back to the employee structure, or the employee perspective, if you're the person building this work, um, you do gain a lot by eliminating that context switching where you can focus and work deeply on one project for weeks at a time and really uh, get um, sort of entrenched in what it's doing and how it's working and sort of you can have a nice working mental model of this project compared to moving from one project to another multiple times per day or multiple times per week, multiple times per month. Um, Mm. So there is a lot of upside here as well. I don't want to scare anybody away from this work. It's just there's a lot to consider, and you have to be very measured in your approach because even with the the upshot of, well, we have now a six-month runway and a six-month or 12-month perspective on business, that can fall apart pretty quickly if you miss a milestone because oftentimes with these upper market and enterprise customers, they have a net 60 or net 90-day pay window. So you send them an invoice in January – you're not getting paid for it until March, which means that if you miss a deadline in January and say, let's let's just say it slips two or three weeks, um, that's two or three weeks that happens in March, but perhaps something else uh, gets in the way as well, right? They, they, they were set up and ready for you to send the invoice that first week of January, but now that you're sending it two or three weeks late, it means it's not getting factored into until the next month's round of vendor payouts, which Hmm. means that you haven't just moved it two or three weeks, you've moved it by a minimum of a month, which means that from March to April, where you're expecting to have this big chunk of money, you don't begin to see that money until April. And it still requires you to be proactive and have a nice reserve of funds to cover those gaps. Otherwise, you end up in a very dangerous cycle. Yeah, that's super sad. Um, And the other element of that is that if they are a large part of your business, then like if you have someone that's a big big project like that and it gets delayed in payment sometimes, uh, they may also be an outsized percentage of your overall revenue. Yes. So it's a very wise thing to diversify how many clients you're working with because you don't want to have this one enterprise client responsible for 50% of your revenue and then find out that 50% of your revenue is now going to be months late in arriving. That is that is a big problem. Yeah, so it creates a scenario where as an organization, you can be super predictable until all of a sudden you're not. <laughs> yep. Uh, and whereas when you have smaller projects, the benefit is that you never really know where the next job's going to come from, but for a lot of a lot of organizations, you always tend to find them. Right. Um, they're but they're always showing up, funnel. you just don't know where they are. Yeah. Yeah. The the other, uh, I I guess, hallmark of these enterprise clients and also the upper market after a certain point uh, 
are the contracts that need to get signed. Contracts are a must for every agency doing any sort of work for for a client. But contracts that exist for these enterprise-grade things are a really big deal, um, uh, both in limiting your liability and providing coverage over all kinds of different eventualities of what happens if we miss a deadline? What if we miss a deadline by this much? What if we launch a thing and this other thing happens? So you have to describe more conditions in, in the contracts. You have to be more explicit in what the deliverables are and what the sort of the, the release trigger is for payment. And um, far and away, the, probably the most important thing I can say about these contracts is do not have your milestones, your payments tied up in client-related responsibilities. So, for example, don't qualify the final payment milestone with launching the website because if the website never launches, that milestone is never triggered and you never get paid. And that is a problem that you will spend a lot of time and money trying to fight. Instead, tie them to things that you control, like the final deliverables for launching the website. So when you turn things over to the client so that it is launch ready, then you get paid and then you do a little bit of work afterwards to actually launch things. And that's just part of the and contract. That, and that may sound like a nightmare client, but at the same time, sometimes you'll just have a job that goes south and when it gets gets to that point and they feel like they haven't gotten what they deserve and you feel like you haven't gotten what you deserve, the that's when the, the contract verbiage does become important. Correct. And... Um, one of my favorite descriptions that I've heard of a contract um, when presenting it, and it doesn't apply at this degree, uh, but just in general, even when you're working on smaller things, I'm providing you with this contract, not because I don't trust you, uh, but it's to speak for you when you're not at the table. Mm. So there's a record of what we agreed on so that if either one of us isn't here to articulate what the agreement was, someone else can read what we understood the agreement to be and act in our best interest. I really yeah. like that a lot. Um, the the trick with enterprise contracts is they have an entire legal team reviewing all of their paperwork usually, and there will be a number of things back and forth about what has to be in the contract, what cannot be in the contract. Here's language that they're giving to you that you need to sign. Here's the language you're giving them that they need to sign. And reconciling that is often an enormous hurdle. And it would be in your best interest to have legal counsel counsel, counsel on retainer that you can feed these contracts to to help you um, to make sure that you're not signing something that's ultimately bad for you or your client. And um, one, uh, one contentious uh, area here is open source software because oftentimes where these get tripped up is the enterprise client says, we want to own whatever works you're producing, right? This is your working for us, it's a work made for hire, whatever uh, they end Therefore up deciding. Uh, yes. And they can't own it if it's open source because WordPress is meant to be free. You can build software for them for their SaaS or for their internal use, right? They don't have to release it. That's totally fine. But they have to recognize that by necessity, um, if they do release something, they also have to provide the source code with it because they don't own any part of that in the same sense that they would own something that you've written from scratch for them only. Um, and so it's, uh, depending on the client, is a mixture of educating them on here's what open source software is and here's why everything we're building on top of WordPress is necessarily open source. Um, and sometimes a mixture of actually, no, we want to release this. Uh, please help us in releasing that. And so you'll have you know larger companies like MailChimp, Facebook, 
etc., who have plugins in the WordPress.org plugin repo that may have been written by an outside agency, and that outside agency is continuing to help them maintain and support these uh, open source aspects of their closed source proprietary business. Yeah. Lawyers, getting lawyers involved is always the unfun part, but again, sometimes the important component. Before we get into the last part of our discussion, and I want to talk about WordPress versus competition um, and how to pitch WordPress in those upper market segmentations. I do want to thank our sponsor for today, our partner, uh, which is WooCommerce. Um, I hope that our listeners know what WooCommerce is. It's the most popular, most used e-commerce software in the world. It's e-commerce on top of WordPress made by the fine folks at Automatic these days. Um, Been in their hands for several years now. It's a really great product that runs my business and a lot of other businesses. Uh, You can do pretty much anything on uh, on WooCommerce. Brian, what is your most interesting thing you've seen built on WooCommerce? I have seen a cake builder built on top of WooCommerce. So someone can come and order a custom cake and see visually what it looks like as they're selecting different options. That's that's very impressive. Um, So whether you're building cakes or whether you're creating a membership website like I do, um, or doing something simple like selling t-shirts or something, you can do it with WooCommerce. They have all sorts of tools that will help you out. And uh, yeah, go to WooCommerce.com to learn more about that and to start your first store. So go build something with WooCommerce. And thank you to the WooCommerce team for being a post as partner. So to wrap up, I do want to talk about how do we pitch WordPress versus other CMS competitors that are in that same space. So these are going to be different competitors than what we have in the lower tier space, which is you may be trying to convince someone why they shouldn't use Wix or Squarespace or something. Um, in this space, we're we're tackling uh, completely different content management systems, whether it's open source options like Drupal or out of the box things. Uh, and I would I want to lean on you to talk about what do you see the most in terms yeah. of what you're up against. So here's something that may be surprising to people. At the end of the day, these enterprise and upper market customers really don't care what software is powering the solution that you're building for them. They didn't come to you to build a WordPress website um, or to build a Drupal website because that's what they already have. They came to you because they need something built, some solution that doesn't already exist for them. And if they are already familiar with a different platform like Drupal or uh, right, if, if they're working with Magento for e-commerce, which is increasingly rare in my experience now for, for people who have reached out in the avenues that I've been watching, um, then, well, first of all, they're probably not coming to you because you're not promoting yourself as someone who who works in that technology. But in general, if they're just looking for proposals, right, they, they've they reached out there, there's some government agency or there's some other company, and they're like, here, agency, here's our request for a proposal, this is what we need, tell us what it's going to cost and what, it, what it'll take to build. They may even specify a competing CMS in that RFP and say, we're looking to have a Drupal site built. And you could still give the winning bid to say, we'd like to build you this site. It's not going to use Drupal. Instead, it's going to use WordPress for these reasons. But ultimately, and then a whole list of reasons and explanations for what you're building and how it's going to work that doesn't hinge on WordPress in any way, shape, or form. Right, you're you're selling them the service to say this is what you've asked us for. This is what we're going to make, and here's why. By the way, we're also going to be using WordPress to build it, which gives you this list of benefits of being able to go to right 
other agencies in the future, to work within this entire ecosystem of tools that we can look into to sort of expand on what we're building for you, and all of the reasons why you choose to work with WordPress in the first place. Um, I, I have had to put WordPress against other CMSs like Drupal and other closed source. Adobe. Sort of, and... Right, things. I would say maybe 5 to 10% of the contracts and, and proposals that I have put together. Um, the other 90 to 95% really don't care at the end of the day what the technology is. Um, Shopify is probably a much better example than than Magento at this point. People who are looking for an e-commerce site, build me a Shopify site. Okay, well, we could do that, but let's also look at this other option, which is to build a WooCommerce site. And here's all of the reasons why you would consider that. Here are all of the things that are going to be the same, regardless of which you pick. Here are all of the things that are going to be different based on what you pick. Which we did a whole podcast about. Which we did a whole podcast about. So if you wanted to know more about some of the pros and cons of working with WooCommerce versus uh, Shopify, Go back and listen to that one. Spoiler, we both prefer WooCommerce, but that's not to say that Shopify is out of the question. Sometimes it, it does make sense, uh, depending on the needs of the client. Um, and that's, that's ultimately your goal in making these proposals and pitching to these clients. I want to provide the best possible service to you. I think that's going to be using WordPress and WooCommerce and all of these things that we're going to build for these reasons. You may disagree and think that it's going to be Shopify or whatever for all of these reasons. Here's the cost of working with us to build the solution in either platform. So you get to choose and we're happy to discuss this with you further and help you come to a better, most educated decision. And there is, there's definitely though, there's a realm of uh, potential customers out there that they know they're after WordPress and they're seeking WordPress professionals to do the job at a high, at a high level. Um, So while a lot of times you're bringing WordPress as a potential solution to the client, uh, you want to be able to take advantage of those times where someone is seeking a uh, someone that's deeply knowledgeable of WordPress and know how you can set yourself apart as an organization from other people that are going to claim to be deeply knowledgeable about WordPress. And that can be a challenge to do. Like, I mean, you may you may know that your engineering talent or whatever you want to call it, your development talent, your project managers, everybody's familiarity is kind of above above the rest in terms of WordPress experience. Uh, but pitching that to the client, I've found it to be a challenge to really get the point across that like, you know what, they may say they know WordPress, but we know WordPress, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it helps when you can point to your pedigree and say, we have these developers who have contributed to Core. You can open up WordPress and look at the About mm. page and see their names listed there. We have yeah. these plugins that have been publicly released. You can go and see those. We have these commercially available products that you can look at, though... I will add a caveat here that it is unwise to try and support both commercial products and clients because those two business styles don't often mesh really well and somebody's going to get the short end of the stick. Um, (laughs) But nevertheless, you can point to things that you've made. uh, In the case of the folks at Web Dev Studios and elsewhere, they can point to books that they've authored um, Mm -hmm. and say, we wrote the book on this. So... Yeah, you can definitely see that. You can see that in um, the portfolios of people that have are doing this well that are really marketing themselves well for high end wordpress they are they are pointing to that type of stuff and it's um it's quite successful uh, you think in terms of uh how, how well that's helping them at least get a foothold and then beyond that like anything in life what's eventually going to be the winner for you is just referrals you know one one business owner talks to another business owner or decision maker and they're like you know what you need to go with this this group or this group because they were great 
and here's why. Um, and if 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 you need those stories, one thing I would encourage people to do that they're probably not doing enough of is go back to the people that you've done great work for and do more than just like a one sentence, uh, you know, testimonial. Do get get something a little more significant from past happy clients that you can do a better feature, a longer feature, uh, get them out there to help essentially be your advocate. And, uh, you know, you'll finish some projects where they just went so well that they would love to do that for you. Um, And I would say to attack that as early as possible too, because the longer you get from the project, the harder it's going to be to get them to be willing to do that type of thing. Yes, I can say with confidence that a really useful marketing tool uh, and just a generally good thing to keep so you can refer back to yourself uh, is a, a nice detailed sort of case study for all of your projects to say, here's what they approached us with. Here's what they asked us to build. Here's what we made. Here's some before and after shots if we can do those or even if not, just here here are some nice looks, uh, detailed looks at some of the features that we've produced for them, um, followed by a nice glowing testimonial from the client. And uh, this works both on your website, but also to send to clients with your proposals to say, here's what we'd like to do for your project. By the way, here is uh, a few handpicked representations of work we've done in the past that sort of meshes with what you've asked us to do. Usually, you're getting asked to do completely unique things for every single project. So you can never say, like, here's another project we did that's just like yours. Uh, But you can say, here's another project that has elements of what you've asked us to do. Mm. And uh, it'll also happen in the enterprise space where they'll ask for references to say, tell us about some of your past clients. Um, And... Is it okay if if we get in touch with them? And they'll, like the this really serious enterprise folks will call up and chat with or email uh, your past clients and say, how'd you like this project? Would you hire them again? Okay, but would you really hire them again? And it's it's very useful to cultivate those good relationships and get those testimonials early and maintain those relationships long-term for things like that. And as... Uh, Krogsgaard said, being able to, uh, it is in your best interest to work on this right away. So if you can, this has been a challenge at every agency I've worked at and everything that I've done independently. But if you can, schedule time for a postmortem as soon as the project has wrapped up to uh, collect a list of here's what went well, here's what went wrong, here's what we would have done differently, and other comments for your own internal purposes, as well as the stuff that goes to be public facing. Here's a list of uh, unique features about this project, different technologies where we've worked with, different things that we built that we haven't built before or haven't built in this way before. Um, Here are pages that are worth showing off or areas that are worth capturing for for images. Um, And that may sound like a lot of work when you have client deadlines also uh, present, ever present, but... That's really going to pay off in terms of you being able to build your business for the long term. Exactly. And if you don't take the time to do it right away, it gets harder and harder and harder to do further out because you will always have client deadlines looming. You'll always have other urgent matters to deal with. And this is a very important but very non-urgent thing to be working on. So it is in your best interest to build this into the product project schedule. So let's say you've got a 12-week project, right? You launch on week 12. On week 13, you spend two hours with the team who is involved to do a debrief, and then another two hours later on to sort of write up a thing, um, and then maybe another two hours at some point after that to make it a publishable work. And 
even if you just invest those six hours, let's say there were five people on the team, right? So there's, uh, there's 10 hours that get spent there from all of the team that was involved, two hours after that from the project manager to collect things into a cohesive thought, two hours of your time to make it into something that you can publish and share and refer back to. So in total, you've spent uh, 14 hours um, on something that is going to net you hundreds of hours of work in the future. It's a very yeah. a, a very good investment. I think if I had to wrap up, and that's what we're going to do here in a second, if, if I had to wrap up my personal advice for how to treat high-end client projects, it would be to approach it from the very beginning like it's going to be a decade-long relationship. Um, because when I look at the most successful agencies in our space, and when I say most successful, I mean they've survived for... Uh, you know, five to 10 years or more. What I see is a lot of them are working with some clients, some of their clients for basically the entire tenure of their business. Like they're growing together essentially. Um, And you'll, you can, you can create a relationship early. And as long as you're treating them right, treating them as you expect to be treated in the relationship, and you're treating them as if this is not a temporary relationship, but one that's going to be ongoing, then it's got a greater chance of being actually being ongoing in a way that is uh, productive and happy for both participants. So that's kind of my end of, end of the story advice. That is a pretty perfect summary, and I think a very healthy perspective to maintain. Yeah, so we will uh, leave it there. Brian, what's going on with WP Sessions and how can people keep up with it? Yeah, so there's a lot of cool stuff coming um, to WP Sessions in the near future. Just had a session with Candice Brigleb to talk about infusing websites with brand voice. And that was awesome. So if, if you've struggled with building a website for a client that's memorable, uh, in particular when you're given almost nothing to work with, like here's our logo and here's a couple of photos of our team, <laughs> Go. Uh, she provides a lot of practical, actionable advice that you can use to build nice, memorable, um, life-giving websites, and uh, and so that was a lot of fun. I had a lot of uh, a great, a lot of great takeaways talking to her. Um, coming up next month, we've got Wes Boss. I was going to talk about uh, some pretty cool JavaScript stuff, and I'm very excited about that. And then I have more things that I'm not going to talk about yet, but. Maybe we'll get to those a little later. Uh, if you awesome. want to follow up with that, you can go to WPSessions.com or follow WP Sessions on Twitter as at WP Sessions. You can follow me as at Risen. Um, One more plug for WP Sessions would be that uh, you do have experience within this topic that we've been talking about, of course. And you do team training that if people want to teach their own teams some of these uh, things, go into depth with, with you, they can hire you for that. So That's uh, true. Go- Go to WPSessions.com slash what for that? Slash teams. Slash teams. Um, and, and if you're not a team, I don't need to be dissuaded by that. Um, it's my private offering for training. So if you're just an individual who's doing really well for yourself or wants to be doing better, um, I offer private coaching and instruction through this WPSessions.teams. WPSessions.com slash teams private training program. Yeah. And that wasn't a plan plug or anything, just something I thought of about as we were wrapping up. Um, so go there and then go to poststatus.com slash club to join the club and go to post status under or post underscore status on Twitter to, to follow me there. And we will catch y'all next time. All right. Have a good one. See you all.